worlds. So it's Mark 1, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Every great film has a great opening. I wonder if you can think of a film a bit like that, where it starts with this enormous bang. It may be your favorite film, it may be not your favorite film, but it was your favorite opening to a film. Maybe it was Jaws. Maybe it was as the young couple skip over the sand dunes and start to go into the water, and then underneath you start to hear that music. Durdum, 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 durdum. Maybe it was the first 25 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, where if you were anything like me, I was in America, I happened to be at a conference in Chicago, and I went to a movie theater, because they call them that over there, and just sat spellbound for the first half an hour, and you could feel the shock in the audience as the violence was portrayed in front of our eyes, and People who were there on the actual D-Day said that it's the closest that they have ever seen to a representation of what actually happened on June the 6th, 1944. And there was a, an extra poignancy for me sitting in an American cinema and watching that film surrounded by Americans. At the end of the film, nobody moved for five minutes. Or maybe if you're an old, very old romantic, it's the opening vistas of the sound of music. 
as that helicopter, because it must have been a helicopter, even though we don't see it, comes over Salzburg and all over the mountains, and there's Julie Andrews swirling around like any nun, singing, <laughs> there is something about the hills, the sound of music. Maybe it's perhaps the first seven minutes of the film Up, where it traces the story of Ellie and uh, Carl's relationship from childhood friends through to teenage lovers, through to a married couple, through miscarriages, through the diagnosis of a terminal illness, to eventually her death, and then Carl being left in Wooderhood in the first seven minutes. It's an emotional roller coaster that leaves you absolutely wrung out. We used it four or five years ago in an all-age service in the summer. Several people, adults and children, had to go for counselling afterwards. Because I had to stand up and preach after it. I didn't realise what I was doing. But I just looked out on this space and people were an emotional wreck. Because they'd gone from birth to romance to love to death and then widowhood in the space of seven minutes. There should be a health warning on that first seven minutes of the film Up. Well, with today's passage that Mark read for us in Mark chapter 1, that's the impact that we're supposed to get from Mark chapter 1. It's the opening credits. It's the cast list. It's us being introduced to the story of what is about to happen. And the idea is that you can almost hear the voiceover, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what it's supposed to be like. Unlike Matthew and Luke, there are no genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. The family tree of Mary and the family tree of Joseph. There's no Christmas story in Mark's gospel. There's no shepherds. There's no wise men. There's no Mary. There's no Joseph. There's no stable. All of that stuff is missed out. It's not referred to. This is not the Christmas gospel, Mark's gospel. Unlike the gospel of John, there's no poetic prologue about light and darkness and the word becoming flesh. It's not like that. Boom, we go straight into with the opening verse, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark's gospel is an eyewitness account of what happened in the life of Jesus. The likelihood is, this, is that, that Mark, John Mark was his full name. Um, Mark was sort of uh, the, the secretary or the translator or the, 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 the writer, the scribe, for Simon Peter. And as Simon Peter is in Rome just before he's, he's put to death, he recites his memories of the accounts of what happened when Jesus was here on earth. And this opening section of verses 1 to 13 is supposed to be dramatic. Mark has been called the tabloid gospel. If you read through Mark's gospel, you'll see that quite often this phrase immediately or as soon as or just then appears again and again and again. And it's supposed to be sort of fast-paced and you go from one incident to another throughout the life of Jesus, throughout the last week of Jesus, and then including the resurrection of Jesus. It isn't 
the Times or the Telegraph or the Scotsman. It's more the Sun. It's more the Daily Mail. That's the idea of Mark's gospel. It's supposed to grab you by the scruff of the neck and shake you. And the people who are listening to it are supposed to get the impact of what happened when this guy, John the Baptist, suddenly appeared. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, that could be the title of the first 13 verses. Or they could also be that could be the title of the whole of the gospel. Because what Mark is doing right at the start is saying, this is what I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to tell you about the good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. It's like a sort of placard. It's a headline. And Mark is saying right at the start of his gospel, that's what my book is going to be about. It's the cover page, it's the front page, it's the headline. He's telling you what he's going to write about. And what he's saying is significant because what he's trying to do is signal something. He's trying to echo Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. Now here in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, we have the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There are deliberate echoes where Mark is saying, creation began, this is a new beginning. This is a new start. This is where things get turned over. This is where restoration begins. This is when the rescue started. And he's deliberately echoing Genesis chapter 1 by choosing to begin his, word, his gospel with the words, the beginning. And remember, when these events occurred that Mark describes, the people of Israel had not heard from God for 400 years. It was 400 years since the last prophet, Malachi, had brought them a message from God. Think back 400 years in our history. So we're talking James the first, or James the sixth, depending which country you're from. It's that long ago, it's 400 years. It's almost Elizabethan, but maybe pre Elizabethan, and Elizabeth I, not Elizabeth II. 400 years when the people of God have been waiting, they've been hoping, they've been dreaming, they've been desperate for a word, for some sign that God was still there, that God was still looking after them, that God was still committed to his promises, that God was there for them, and that he still loved them. 400 years. We've been through a disruption over the last two years. Many of the things that we have taken for granted just disappeared for long periods of time. Things like going to the shops, things like going to the pub, things like going for a meal, things like meeting friends, things like 
going to the cinema, going to the theater. For two years, we couldn't do those things, and some of us are finding it hard to restart some of those habits that we had before the pandemic. Some of us don't want to restart some of those habits. Some of us are quite glad that some of those habits have gone. That's after two years. Imagine waiting for 400 years and the greatest disruption in the history of humanity happens. Because that is what Mark is telling us in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The waiting is over. The hoping is over. The dreaming is over. The desperation is over. Because in the greatest disruption in the history of time and eternity, if eternity can have a history, God himself has entered into time and space in a new way. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And he makes it, he describes it as good news is, is the term. Gospel is the word that's used in other translations. And it's quite a technical word. We think about it now in Christian terms. In, in the time when Mark lived and when Jesus lived and Simon Peter lived 2,000 years ago, it didn't have religious connotations. A euangelion, because that's the Greek word, a proclamation, was normally announcing the declaration of victory on a battlefield. You sent your army off to fight hundreds of miles away, and they sent a messenger back to Rome or back to Athens. And they announced that the, the battle had been fought and the victory has been won. That was a euangelion. It was a formal declaration of victory. So again, it's significant that Mark deliberately chooses that word about the euangelion concerning Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It was either a formal declaration of victory from a battlefield that was far away, or it was the word used to describe the birth, the arrival of an emperor or a king on his accession to the throne. Do you see, Mark is choosing his words quite deliberately. It's the announcement of victory from a battlefield far away, and it's the announcement of the accession to the throne of the rightful king of kings, who isn't Caesar, who isn't all the kings of Israel, but he's Jesus, who's the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. It's an imperial announcement of glad tidings. And then in the rest of the verses that follow immediately afterwards, we have the cast list. Many of us uh, at the moment are going to fringe shows, and uh, you, you, you're told maybe on a, a piece of paper, a flyer, who is in the cast. That's what Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13 is. It's a cast list. It introduces all the characters, or some of them, most of them, who were about to feature in the rest of the gospel. So it introduces Jesus... It introduces John, it introduces the crowds from Judea, it introduces the crowds from Jerusalem, and it introduces this guy 
John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And he's the one who takes center stage first. He's a very strange character. He's Jesus' cousin. We don't know whether John the Baptist knew that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. There's that time uh, recorded elsewhere in the other Gospels when um, Mary meets her cousin Elizabeth, John's mum, and the, ba the baby in, in Elizabeth's womb, John, leaps in the womb, kicks his mum on the inside because he's aware of the presence of Jesus in Mary. But there's no indication that as they grew up together, John the Baptist knew Jesus and knew that he was the Messiah. So maybe John the Baptist is as surprised as everybody else, as when he promises that this person's going to come, it then turns out to be his cousin. We don't know how they interacted together, really, what happened. John the Baptist, his name literally means John the Baptizer, John the Immerser, John the Plunger, John the Dipper. That's what his word, his name literally means. It's sort of nickname that he's been given. He dipped people into the River Jordan. He baptizes them. He immerses them. He plunges them. Baptism at that time was a very common um, practice within Judaism. Um, if you wanted to follow a particular rabbi or a teacher, you were baptized into their school. It was the, the, the symbol of membership. It was like initiation. You joined their club. You joined their rabbinic school. You became their disciple. And as, as one of indicator of, of joining their club, of joining their school, you were baptized into their school, sometimes in sand. Water was nicer, but you could be baptized in sand. So there was nothing particularly unique about what John the Baptist is, is doing, but there is something unique about what John the Baptist is saying. Because he doesn't just invite people to enter into his rabbinic school. He says that in order to, to be righteous, you have to do some things. You have to repent and be baptized. Now, that language was very commonly used for people who weren't Jews, for people who were Gentiles, for people who were pagans, for people who were converting to Judaism. They had to repent and be baptized. But John the Baptist doesn't say that to pagans and to Gentiles. He says it to Jewish people. He says, in essence, what he's saying is there's a new way of being right with God. That being Jewish isn't enough. That in order to become right with God, you have to repent and be baptized. Now, the word repent... Again, it's fallen out of favor, if we're honest. There's, there's not many churches that preach a lot, including ourselves, about repentance. We might do it during Lent for a couple of weeks, but that's usually when we focus on it. We don't talk a lot about it because for hundreds of years, some people had the impression that it was all the church talked about. And the danger is that in, a, in sort of adjusting to what's been a misuse of the word is that we completely omit to use it and we omit to recognize its significance. It is about being sorry. It is about being conscious of our sin. 
But that's not just what it's about. Last year when I was doing some reading, one of the, the, the help, really helpful ways that one writer wrote about it was, it was speaking about it in terms of realignment. That as we repent, we realign our thinking, we realign our living with God. I've always understood it to mean sort of turn around, repent, you turn around 180 degrees. But this idea of realignment was really helpful for me. That repentance is not just about saying sorry, but it's about realigning our lives so that we start to do the things that Jesus wants us to do. We start to say the things that Jesus wants to say. Our hands do the things that Jesus wants us to do, and our feet go to places where Jesus wants us to go. That the whole of our lives are realigned to what God wants for each of us and how he wants us to live. That's one of the senses of the word repentance. And John the Baptist, to Jewish people, the crowds from Judea and Jerusalem, he says, you must repent, realign your lives, and be baptized. Because somebody is coming who is the promised one. Somebody is coming after me who is stronger than I. And John the Baptist proclaims, and the word again that's, that's used to describe John is as a preacher or a herald. And again, that's quite a significant word in, in the time that Mark lived. That word was used to describe when a king was coming into a place or when an assembly was called of the citizens from which we, the Greek term is ecclesia. It's the same Greek word at root that we get Cayley from in Scots. This coming together of a solemn assembly. And that's the idea of when somebody is a herald or a proclaimer, they announce the coming of the king, they called a solemn assembly, or it was the time when, when all the athletes gathered together when the person at the start of the games, imagine the, the Olympics or, or the Commonwealth Games that have just happened recently, it's that time when the person tells everybody who's going to compete in the games, these are the rules. It's quite a technical word. And that's what's happening when John the Baptist is described as a preacher or a herald. He's announcing the coming of the king. He's calling a solemn assembly, and he's telling the people, these are the rules that God has for his people. He's quite a funny figure. He's dressed deliberately, perhaps, with echoes of the prophet Elijah, so that people think, is this the prophet Elijah? He wears a leather belt and hair and has a funny diet of honey and locusts, and he's quite a sort of enigmatic character. He's the warm-up man for the Messiah. And where he appears is significant. He's described as being in the wilderness. And the wilderness was the place between Lake Galilee and the Dead Sea, near where the Jordan meets the Dead Sea, deliberately where God had led the people from Egypt into the Promised Land. That is where John the Baptist appears. It's a place of incredible historical, national, and theological significance, and was also the boundary between east and west. 
So John the Baptist deliberately appears on the borderlands, on the margins, to announce that the greatest disruption in history and eternity is now coming. And he tells them four things. They need to be baptized, washed or cleansed. They need to repent. They need to receive forgiveness. And they need to recognize their sins. And he points to this stronger one. This stronger one who's going to come after me, he says. Who's the, t- the, the sandals I'm not worthy to tie. And he points people to Jesus. Because he will baptize not just with water but with the Holy Spirit. And then on comes to the scene, verse 9, Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. The prologue is over. Scene 1 is beginning. Jesus comes on into the middle of the stage where John, his cousin, already is. And Jesus comes deliberately, he is described, as coming from Nazareth. Not Bethlehem, the place of Davidic kings, where Davidic kings came from. Not Jerusalem, the holy or royal city. But he comes from Nazareth. He comes from the north. He comes from the unconventional, irreligious, uneducated, uncouth, rebellious north, where they do things and did things differently. And Jesus comes from there as a signal that things are changing, that all their expectations are about to be confounded, that all their preconceived ideas about how God works are going to be ripped up. And Jesus does not baptize anybody. Jesus is baptized by John. Later in the service, we'll remember how Jesus identifies with humanity in death Here, Jesus identifies with humanity by asking to be baptized by John. He doesn't need to be baptized. He's got no sin to ask forgiveness for. But he identifies with humanity and is washed in the River Jordan by his cousin. And then again, the significant thing happens. Um, Heaven is torn open. It's quite a violent word. Heaven is torn open and the Spirit flutters descends like a dove. It's not a dove, but it's like a dove. And there's only one other place where the Spirit is described as fluttering. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the Spirit hovered, fluttered over the waters of creation. So again, Mark is making deliberate deliberate comparisons between Genesis chapter 1 and the opening of his gospel. And then comes the voiceover artist to end all voiceover artists. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. James Earl Jones probably would have got the gig. In words that both Darth Vader and Mufasa do echo. You're my son, Simba. Luke, I am your father. That's quite deliberate by the people who wrote Star Wars and The Lion King. Because they're echoing these words when when the father pronounces who the son is. 
and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So what are the implications for us? As we begin this journey, if you call P's and G's home, we're going to be going through Mark's gospel over the next three or four months in the lead up to Advent. Because we want to focus again on the person of Jesus and what it means for every single one of us to follow him. We want to recalibrate and regather around the person of Jesus and make him our focus when we come together on Sundays. So firstly, do we understand the radical disruption and the nature of the call to follow Jesus? That being a follower of Jesus Christ is not something that we do on Sundays, but it's something that we're invited to do for the whole of our lives and that it has implications for the whole of our lives. Secondly, are we willing to go through that process of realignment? To recognize that the way in which we're heading, the way in which we're living at the moment, is not the way that God wants us to live. It might be how we're using money. It might be how we're using our relationships. It might be how we're thinking about ourselves. It might be how we're thinking about other people. And it will be different areas for different ones of us where God is placing his, his hand, his finger on our lives and saying, there needs to be realignment so that you live the way I want you to live. And then do we hear God's voice saying to us, and this is the amazing promise that we have as Christians, that just as he says to Jesus, you're my son whom I love, he says to each and every single one of us who are his followers, you're my child, and I love you. I'm well pleased with you. I love you. And if you leave with nothing else this morning, that you leave with that one thought, that you are deeply, 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 deeply loved. That you are forgiven if you acknowledge your sin, that you can be forgiven and you can receive that new beginning. And maybe as you come forward this morning and receive the bread, at the moment we're, we're not serving the wine, but as you come and receive the bread and remember the body of Jesus given for you, you can ask for that new beginning, that fresh start today. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite the band if they want to come up. In a moment, they're going to lead us in a song of response before we continue in response through a time of communion. But Father, we ask, as we look at the person of Jesus, would you help us to see afresh who he is? That whether we've followed you for five minutes or five months or five years or five decades, there will be something new and fresh that we will discover about what it means to follow you. Lord, this morning, may we know that our sins can be forgiven. May we know that you love us and are well pleased with us. And may we realign our lives so that we put you first. So that we live for you and with you. In order that you might be honored. That you might be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen.